0: you join me in our prayer for illumination God who is over us God who is one of us God who is give us pure hearts that we may see you humble hearts that we may hear you hearts of love that we may serve you hearts of faith that we may abide in your heart amen our scripture lesson is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, then jumping to 16 to 29. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the worshipers of the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving the water jar, the woman went back to town and to the people, Come, see a man who has told me everything. Let's pray. Bless, O Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. O Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. Stella Bugby has written a week long series of articles entitled How to Raise a Boy. It's so easy, she says, to get it wrong talking to my son. Who wants to talk to their mother at 13? She likes to prime the pump for conversation by taking him out on errands or encouraging him to go for a walk and occasionally he will seek her out in the quiet of a corner of the house when she's folding laundry and it's then she knows that he's got something to work out she says if i'm patient with him i am rewarded with the questions complaints and fears of boyhood, a psychic and physical terrain so unfamiliar to me that I feel part anthropologist, part therapist, part ferocious mama lion, wanting to fix, avenge, and study him in equal measures. She reports that the tone of the conversations are what's important, and that when they go back and reflect on what was said, oftentimes they can't remember what the conversations were about. Only that when they're together and they relax, they begin to have real, frank conversations, and he begins to share fearful and dangerous things. Like how he and his buddies are on top of high buildings jumping from one to the other and how there are kids at school trying their first experiment with pot. She thinks sometimes maybe when he's talking about other people, he's really just trying to work through some things for himself in safety and then don't even mention the girls. I suspect he's telling stories about other people as a way to describe what he's dealing with. What we know is that these catalytic conversations, the meaningful conversations of our lives, are fraught with this mix of discomfort and discovery. With as much pain as potential catalytic conversations can only be had when we are ready to risk a mixture of struggle and clarity and even fear because what we're building is a deep transformational set of relationships i want you to understand jesus is about relationships and he's in them with all four feet Jesus specializes in catalytic conversations filled with risk. Our story this morning is a perfect example of whom Jesus is not supposed to talk with for double reasons. Good Jewish men don't speak to women in public, and then you add that she's a Samaritan. Don't even mention that she's at the well, at the heat of the day, at the noon hour, when the other women will not come to avoid their stares and their chatter. You could add a few more reasons if you'd like. She's got a shady past, a reputation. But Jesus begins this conversation with her with an enormous amount of patience And care. In fact, in the early part of the conversation, Jesus and the woman at the well are speaking over each other. He's talking about living water, and water that keeps you from being thirsty again, and she's talking about buckets, and the need for cups, and how do you get water that doesn't keep you thirsty anymore. It's doing this, and so Jesus stays in that conversation long enough to explain the metaphor and to never for a moment make fun of her or judge her inability to grasp the concept. Instead, he nudges her, he nurtures her like a parent teaching a child. He speaks simply, he speaks the truth. And in his way of speaking that truth to her, she is transformed isn't that the difference in a catalytic conversation this conversation takes on power when jesus begins to say tell me about your husband and she in this exchange realizes this is a time for truth she's honest Jesus then is able to share the rest of her story and somehow he does it in a way that is kind, it is patient, and incredibly compassionate because he wants to know her. He wants to connect with her. You see, for Jesus, truth is never a weapon It is freedom and grace and restoration and promise and deliverance all wrapped up in one. This woman, her community, and their welfare matter to Jesus, whether or not they are nobodies. It's challenging news. For those of us who think we are somebodies, because it reminds us that the nobodies of the world are the somebodies in the eyes of Jesus. Maybe there are our neighbors, our strangers who walk up to our door. They're a group that needs a home to meet, or a sense of welcome that is seldom offered. Jesus welcomes the outsider as the somebody he needs and wants to know. He wants a connection. Brene Brown has done a lot of study about connection and why connection is so hard. And she said, as a social worker for 10 years, you realize that connection is why we're here. It's what makes meaning and purpose in our lives. doesn't matter if you talk to people who work in social work or mental health, abuse and neglect. What we know is that connection or the ability to feel connected is how you and I are neurologically wired. It's why we want and need each other. To her surprise, though, when she got into the research, there emerged a pattern. When you ask people about love, they'll tell you about all the heartbreak they've experienced. And when you ask people about belonging, they'll tell you about all the places where they've experienced being excluded. And when you ask people about being connected, they'll tell you about being disconnected. So quickly, she stopped. She said she ran into this unnamed thing that was unraveling connection in a way that she'd never seen and didn't understand, and then she figured it out. It turns out to be shame. Shame is really easiest understood as the fear of being known and therefore disconnected. What if people know? What if people see? What if I'm not worthy to belong? Everywhere Jesus goes, he has a sense of this disconnected. It. He knows that he needs to be a part of being the restorer of wholeness and to understand shame. Whether it's this woman at the well, the woman who touched the hem of his garment in secret so as not to be known, if it is the mind man who isn't sure whether or not he needs to be healed, or if it's about people who need to stop fishing for fish, for dinner, and to learn how to fish for people instead to heal what hurts us, to end our shame, is where catalytic conversations begin. Well, what happens in a good one? Well, first, we recognize that Jesus and this woman at the well have this mutual, respectful conversation. He breaks all the rules in order to be respectful and speak to her, the conversation could have gone any numbers of ways, many of which would not have provided the same results. But it is in this frank, non-judgmental way that Jesus is able to reveal who He is so that she can recognize who He is for her. It took real, quiet, deep conversation at a well to make it happen. It was mutual, it was reciprocal, and it was in regard for the other. Jesus needs some water, and she needs water only he can provide. This is where truthful conversation begins, from that place of mutual vulnerability, a space where we recognize each party has something in the game and a little risk. I suspect that very few conversations begin with the expectation of vulnerability. Yet catalytic conversations have to start there because it's the fundamental characteristic of our God. Jesus dares to imagine that this woman matters. Do you know that you and I matter to God? Sometimes it's hard to believe. Can we imagine a world in which everyone knew that they mattered? Would our world not be dramatically different? Jesus recognizes that an individual needs to thrive within community and can only do so when they're connected and valued. He's got to make some space for that. He has to make room for it in the world. Now when you and I who live in the West think about a room, we think about walls and structures and space. And when we think nobody's in it, that their room is empty. Logical conclusion. In Japan, however, they build spaces with intention and spirit involved. So the room is never empty. It's always filled with potential. And I can't help but imagine Jesus thinking about the space around that well, or the space in a crowd, or the space on a beach is holy ground and any conversation that happens there has potential and power. We just have to make room for it in the spaciousness of our heart and our lives. The second thing about a good catalytic conversation is that questions and curiosity are critical to the meaningful conversation. Who touched me? What do you need to be healed? Now, these are not questions that have to be decided by having the right answers. These questions are asked not just to be mannerly, no, these questions communicate an interest, a curiosity about the other, a willingness to understand and and begin to look from your perspective and from my perspective, Jesus shares his knowledge of this invitation to the conversation that must take place is now going to be transformational because she moves from questions to thoughtful questions to questions that matter. Are you a prophet? Now, given this information, where are we to worship? And, and how do we worship in spirit and in truth? It's just blowing her mind but look what happens next it's the coolest thing ever for the first time in all of scripture jesus has made a connection with this woman and you know what he does he looks at her and says you're looking for a prophet for the messiah it's me He hasn't told the disciples. He didn't reveal it in the temple. He told a woman at the well who didn't belong, who may have been the only one at the time to get it. Zalika Gardner as an educator. She's done a study on the power of listening, and she says the greatest enemy to the power of listening is certainty because certainly makes an assumption. The assumption that I know who you are, I know your type, I have a label for you, and I'm not afraid to use it. My experience has already defined you. Arrogance. Not only do I know who you are, I've already decided about your life. Therefore, I will avoid you and avoid talking to you. You are irrelevant. And therefore, I don't have to listen. The enemy of listening is also fear. The certainty of fear says, I'm afraid that listening to you may require something of me. It may require time and energy and discomfort. It may challenge my experience and therefore risk my sense of safety and my made-up mind. Each moment I make a decision not to listen, I communicate to another that they are not worthy, not of my attention, my time, and in fact, they don't even matter. Catalytic conversations anticipate the unworthiness and dig it out and claim us and love us. And then they bring about a change that's only possible in this conversation. The woman at the well goes from being shamed to becoming a witness. She goes from being dismissed to being a disciple, from being alone to being a sheep of Jesus' own fold. Now notice what she says and what isn't said. When the woman recognizes Jesus, she leaves her buckets, runs into town, and says, "Come and see, this man has told me everything I've ever done, and there are four words missing. But you heard them? "Come and see this man who's told me everything I've ever done and loved me." Anyway, everything she has done is a long list of sin. It's common knowledge to everyone. It's in front of her in the judgmental expressions and reactions of all her neighbors. So for Jesus to know her past, still love her and forgive her, well, that's absolutely unbelievably new and fresh as anything she's ever heard. This man told her everything she'd ever done and loved her anyway, and it saved her life. You see, there's a lot at stake, a lot to hand over in this metaphorical cup of living water. We can't be afraid to ask for the things that support our life because we can't be afraid to share the things that give life. This giving and receiving are more than thirst-quenching cups of water. They are fountains of life, are diving into the ocean of the eternal. So I got to ask you, can we have catalytic conversations? We know we're hardwired for connection right here where we are. We know that we are glorious, wonderfully, and awfully fallibly, and mixed up, made match batches of human messiness. We're a piece of work. So why do we think we needed to be raised as flawless? Why do we raise our children to be perfect? When we hold those beautiful little girls this morning, our job is not to say, look at her, she is absolutely perfect. It's not our job to keep her perfect. It's not our job to make sure that she makes the tennis team by fifth grade and Yale by seventh. Our job is to look at those beautiful children and say, you know what? You're imperfect, and you're wired to struggle, and you're worthy of love, and you belong. Our job is to make the holy space for them to figure it out, to wrestle life through, to be connected in a way that matters at home, at work, at school, in their lives in the world. You see, here's the thing, we've got these struggles, we are messy people, but there is holy room, the holy space of opportunity for messy people. There's promise. The catalytic conversations we have will have us facing ourselves with honesty and Jesus recognizing us with compassion And there's the blessing. What we'll find out is that we belong. You and I, we are loved. And our joy and our mission and our creativity will be restored right there in the middle of our vulnerability and brokenness. You see, when we risk sharing a cup of living Jesus a cup of living Jesus with another person. Well, that's the thin place between heaven and earth, and that thin place disappears. It's where Jesus will share who he is, where you and I can kiss the face of God and drink from a cup that never, ever runs dry. You and me, the messy wees. God loves us and longs to be connected in a transformational way. Let's pray. Lord, if we could just remember that the struggle is where we can find you. That there's always holy space to work things out. That your love is sufficient to heal and restore. And that our lives with you can be blessing regardless of the struggle. Talk with us. Shake us. Help us to share. Tell us who we are so that we can be honest and one with you we ask it in christ's name amen